You've wanted it, you've begged for it, and it's finally here, just under the wire. It's our annual summer episode. Tonight we'll be discussing the summer movie releases of 1994. And as usual, I'm Jamie, I'm here with Adam, and our great buddy who graces us with his presence once a year for this special event, Mr. Aaron Diaz. Hey, buddy. Hey, guys. I usually ask um, what the overall impression of this summer was, but uh, I guess I'll still ask it. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have an overall impression of the summer, or do we want to wait till the end until after we've reviewed everything? Well, I know what the summer was. I remember 94, so I can tell you what that summer was. Yeah, Uh, me too. That that was, I mean, obviously that was the summer of, officially that was the summer of Gump. It came out midsummer, but it kind of ruled from that, from the moment it came out for the next year. It was the mm-hmm. summer of Gump. Um, but, you know, even though that was the thing, that, that was the thing that was everyone's talking about, there was a lot of other good stuff that summer, Natural Born Killers, and Speed were kind of the two highlights for me. And, of course, the, I guess the other big film that summer was uh, Lion King. And it just felt like um, a lot of talk of, you know, Hollywood not knowing what to do. And there's always that, and there's always sequels and retreads and all that. But there was a lot of, there was enough variety back then in both the mainstream and in the indie world even in the summer, that there was almost at least something uh, de- at the very least decent to watch every week, and a lot of times there was even something better than decent every week to watch. So '94 is actually a good uh, movie year. It's not as it's uh, it's almost as good as '93. Uh, there's some really great stuff in '94. I I was not a, a particular fan of that movie summer actually I was disappointed more often than not there are a few things that I return to personally that I saw that summer that uh, I do that were good movies and still are but uh the ratio of for me personally hits to misses where there are a whole hell of a lot more misses than uh, hits <laughs> so um, I think 93 yeah. was a much stronger year, but, but that's just me. Okay, and of course, you know, when you're talking about summer, um, Pulp Fiction was in the fall, right? Yes, October. Right, but, it, but uh, uh, the Cannes Film Festival was in May, so yeah. uh, it was just something we were, uh, I remember, just waiting for. Anticipating mm-hmm. that, Waiting yeah. for it. And even then, in the summer, you know, late summer, you had not only... Um, <laughs> Natural Born Killers, which had a Taran- a very tenuous Tarantino connection, but you also had um, uh, the little movie Killing Zoe with mm-hmm. Eric Stoltz that Roger Avery directed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so you just had all this talk that was just leading yeah. up to when Pulp Fiction was going to finally arrive. Yeah, I think in general it was the the year of Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, you've got a lot of knockoffs too, but, um, I mean, this but the... Uh, the year itself, leading up to the following year, the Oscars, it was Gump versus Pulp Fiction. So mm-hmm. the, the summer, the summer still had a staying power even at the uh, the following year. 
let's let's not shoot our wad. Let's go ahead and <laughs> talk about these releases and uh, test Aaron's theory that there was something good that came out every week. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, does anyone know what Widow's Peak is? I don't know what that is. I I do. That was actually that's a very good movie. Uh, it's a uh, it had a it was just it was Mia Farrow, John Plowright. I forget who the third woman is. There's one more, and uh, it was just kind of this very uh, fun, complicated uh, mystery uh, involving widows. This town where there are a lot of widows, and uh, it had a. I remember it had a twist ending. I have, I remember it was very good at the time. I haven't seen it in years, uh, and it had a twist ending that startled everyone and it was one of those fun twists endings that everyone oh. talked about and it was a surprise you know hit and it was it was in that you know there's that there's that period in the late 80s to the mid 90s where we were getting all these um i guess lack of a better word quirky irish and british kind of human comedies and this was one of those in that in that mix and uh yeah, yeah John Irvin John Irvin was the director and the third woman was Natasha Richardson Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, so there was if they a lot remade of that movie today, Liam Neeson would be in that role. Right. And they re and and the and the talk at the, at the time was that <laughs> it was Mia Farrow's <laughs> first on-screen appearance in two years since Husbands and Wives, and she's actually pretty mm. good in the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was one of it was one of those deals. Uh, that oh, so that's her first. Was, that's her first post Woody scandal movie. Right. A few days later, um, Three Ninjas Kick Back. Now, how many Three Ninjas (laughs) movies were there? There were a lot. Uh, People don't remember the first Three Ninjas movie was a late, was an August 92 release. It was a surprise hit. So then we got this uh, sequel that just wasn't, you know, and the first Ninja is actually modest, has modest charms. If you you know if you're eight years old, the first Ninjas three Ninjas movies it has you know is actually you know pretty fun entertainment, and this <laughs> believe it or not just doesn't live up to the first three Ninjas movies. Yes, yes, it's, it's, it it doesn't it, hold a candle to the John Turtletop yeah. original. <laughs> right. All right, I was gonna say it doesn't get the job done. Let's go ahead and get that out there. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, May May six also on that date. Being human, isn't that the Robin Williams thing? That's Robin correct. Williams. Uh, what's what's the guy's name? The guy that did Local Hero. Bill Bill Forsyth. Bill Forsyth. Yeah, that was the big. It was a big disaster. It was. Uh, apparently, um, it was on the shelf for maybe two years, a year and a half. I know it was on the <laughs> shelf for a long, long time. Then I think they, you're right. They, then they dumped it. I remember the story I remember, I, ne- I I think I saw it like a year later on HBO, the story I remember when they reviewed on Cisco and Ebert, uh, they, the, the studio only gave them two clips to show. So they're like, this is all we can show you, these two clips. So, I mean, that's how much they wanted to bury that movie. Yeah. One man must learn the meaning of courage across four lifetimes, centuries yeah. apart. It was... I mean, it was a sad falling from grace for uh, for Forsyth. I mean, you know, local mm-hmm. hero, Gregory's Girl, uh, and so and all those other films. And then Robin Williams. I mean, he was coming off of Doubtful. Obviously, they thought if they, you know, they were 
they thought they'd get some Doubtfire momentum on because Doubtfire was just leaving theaters. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't think Bill Forsyth's career ever recuperated from that, if I'm not correct. I, I think. I don't remember no, him ever. I he did a was... sequel to Gregory's Girl years later that I heard mm-hmm. was actually pretty good, but it got no traction yeah. here in the States. Mm. Anyway. Also on that date, Dana Carvey, comedy, Clean Slate with mm-hmm. Valeria Galino. And I was I wondering act- just the other day, whatever <laughs> happened to Valeria Galino? And I looked mm-hmm. her up, and she's she's still around. But man, she made her so uh, she appeared in a lot of movies during this time. She a lot did. of comedies. An it girl. Yeah. An it, it comedy girl. She was very good at comedies and this, Hot Shots, and uh, Hot Shots Two, and all that. And um, I will confess, I like Clean Slate. Uh, I think it's one. I think it's one of the. Uh, it's actually probably the. Uh, it's the good Dana Carvey vehicle. It's the it's a good Dana Carvey vehicle. He he got he had a few of those and most of them weren't very good. You know, Master of the Skies, yeah. Opportunity Knocks. This was the one that really suited him best. Um, I like Clean Slate. And there's some good sly satire. There's a couple of gags that the the stuff with the dog is uh is very funny. A dog with depth perception problems and uh there's a couple of riffs on the third man in a couple of scenes. So there's some smart stuff in there. Uh it's a smart, uh, and th- but the thing is, uh, this movie didn't do too well because, frankly, uh, this was the year of Jim Carrey, and so uh, Dana Carvey looked a little more restraint in the year of Jim Carrey. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, also, on that date, the last release on that particular date is a Yahoo Serious movie. Remember Yahoo Serious. Mm-hmm. This was called Reckless, Reckless Kelly. It's a 1993 <laughs> movie that didn't get released until 94. Did not know that existed. He plays an Australian Robin Hood, a bank robber, a pop, pop culture hero, and a video shop owner. That's who we need to look up. We need to look up and find out what happened to Yahoo Serious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be a... We need to get that no, dude on the show. <laughs> yeah, he, he's in the Australian he, outback somewhere. This him and Paul Hogan. Yep, I think so. Uh, May eleventh, May eleventh, the following. I suppose it's a Wednesday, maybe. Uh, probably one of the most controversial films prior to its release because it involved the death of an actor, and that is mm-hmm. The Crow, Brandon Lee. Uh, it was hard to escape the shroud of tragedy, even though I, I know a lot of people dig that movie, but I'm curious if they would dig it if it wasn't associated with his death as much. Uh, um, but what do you think of that movie? Adam first, what do you think of that movie? I think it's good. Uh, I'm not going to say it's great, but it was a solid uh, you know, uh, movie of its type. Um, the accident, the tragic accident notwithstanding, uh, if you didn't know, didn't have any prior knowledge of that, I think that you would find it um, generally engrossing and entertaining. And, um, you know, it's not something that uh, you're going to ponder its meanings for any length of time afterwards. But, you know, I I enjoyed it. I I do remember uh, having a good time with it uh, when it came out. 
So yeah, movie. It's a movie truly of its moment, and that uh, the visual style, that grunge visual style, the soundtrack was a big deal, and um, it's a quite effective visual uh, piece of filmmaking. Alex Proyas kind of really uh, announced himself with that movie, and um, it was a real calling card movie. So visually, it's pretty stunning, and it's a real calling card movie, and. Uh, four years later, he would deliver on that with uh, Dark City. Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, and Dark City, unfortunately, really didn't take him very far. Uh, well, Dark City was Dark City was crushed by a little movie called Titanic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, sadly, but I mean, Dark City has you know obviously withstood the test of time. One, well, so is Titanic, and uh, The Crow. Uh, I mean, it made like I think fifty million. So I mean, it was legit. Hit and critics did approve of it, and it's very. It has withstood time. It, it does hold up quite well. Its sequels, straight to video sequels, are not good, but uh, you know the crow still stands. The crow flies. Yeah. The crow flies. There we go. <laughs> good. Okay, and uh, two days later, we had the Spike Lee family dramedy, Crooklyn. I will say my memory of Crooklyn is. Um, you know, managing a movie theater at the time. I remember we had to put up signs for people that bought tickets for it because there's a place in the movie where he switches from from a scope format to the flat format, so it just stretches everything out. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to... It's a directorial choice that indicates uh, uh, he's, he's uh, in kind of a different uh, state of mind. They the child character at that point in time in his life and it's disorienting and weird for him but of course most moviegoers aren't savvy enough to know that it's not indicative of something being wrong with the projector it's actually meant to be that way so we have right. signs everywhere i as a big lover of spike lee i thought the the movie was okay but um uh certainly he's had much better efforts mhm yeah, I I saw that theatrically uh, because at that point I was seeing pretty much everything Spike Lee made when as soon as it came out, and I did not know about that sequence where he was distorting everything with his you know use of lenses, and I immediately saw I saw that happening and thought that it was a projectionist issue because typically projectionists would, you know, use the wrong lens. Uh, yeah, but I couldn't imagine why they would do it in the middle of the movie. But uh, we, posted, we posted those signs for you. Uh, yeah, I wish we had had one in the theater where I saw it, but I, I did complain to myself. I didn't actually go out and file a complaint or anything, but it, it, it cleared up, so I thought, I said, well, okay, it's a st- stylistic choice. I figured it out at that point. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of a middling effort uh so to speak and coming on i think wasn't that his first movie after malcolm x and of course uh, yeah i th- I, th- I think i had high expectations w- after malcolm x because mm-hmm. i was quite impressed with that so uh a l- little bit of a letdown not gonna lie about it so uh i'm a big crookman fan it actually made my top 10 that year uh it's uh i mean it's a, it was his first pg film it was his first quote-unquote family film so it was a real change of pace. Uh, and the, the thing about Crooklyn, it really meanders for about an hour. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of don't know where it's going, and it takes a while before you realize that the the lone girl of the family is actually the lead. Like she's not even told. You're not even told she's the real lead uh, for about the first 20 minutes, and it kind of meanders, and then it starts to to come together, and then it kind of really comes together in the last act of the film and really gets in power. And it owes a lot to, um, it's really his, uh, his Amacord, his like Fellini's Amacord. And it gets a lot of memories and riffs and uh, incidents. And um, some of them kind of uh, add up, some of them don't. But it's just kind of this uh, more of a evocation. I think, I think of a, a lot of, of directors period. have that. A lot of directors have that. Like, if you think about uh, Radio Days or Avalon, or they they got right. those kind of uh, intimate childhood uh, memory movies. Mm-hmm. If not autobiographical, just the feeling and the sensation of where they grew up is represented yeah. there. You know, and they always they always start off kind of meandering, and you're kind of wondering, is there a point to this? And usually, particularly like in Avalon the last act you realize ooh he, uh, you realize everything has been uh, leading up to something on purpose yeah. even though it didn't feel that way and i think crooklyn is the same way uh you know it, it kind of it feels meandering and and uh, pointless but then the last act it really uh you know yeah. packs a punch i mean I, I i i feel that there's an element of a lot of my favorite spike lee movies that are meandering with a purpose and that he allows characters time to, to breathe and communicate. Mm-hmm. And we really get a sense of their world. And the mm-hmm. last movie I felt that way that I felt was absolutely stunning because of it was the Florida project. Um, right. Yeah. So I'm not mm-hmm. opposed to that kind of approach. Mm-hmm. I just, when you're dealing with, I, I guess it's the, the logic of expectations because you automatically believe that, Oh God, another, hard-hitting Spike Lee punch in the gut uh, <laughs> for which he was known. Yeah, and uh, kudos to him for going yeah. in a different way. And it was co-written with two of his siblings. I think uh, his sister and his brother co-wrote it. I mean, yeah. it's funny. Uh, I guess maybe it's because I guess rewatched it so I have it on the brain. But the movie that Crooklyn um, resembles a lot of is uh, actually, of, of all things, My Girl, which was like three years earlier. If you look at My Girl, um, there's a lot, uh, it has kind of similar uh, uh, trajectories. We're just kind of following this summer and this Ooh. girl for the summer. They have kind of similar... My Girl. Yeah. My Girl, which was yeah. shot 10 minutes away from me. Huh. And I've, you know, I've gone all the way to L.A. to see movie locations, but I've never tried to find the movie locations 10 minutes away from me. <laughs> but there you go. Never. On that same date, uh, Paul Rodriguez, remember him? He directed yeah, yeah. and starred in a movie called A Million to One. I actually One. saw that. I, I have no that. doubt. Uh, <laughs> uh, in a... Apparently, Rod- I mean, I have, that was the last Rodriguez film I saw after next, I guess, until Ali this season. But apparently, um, he has made quite a few movies, like I guess, written and directed, and written and or directed. Um, but Million to One, I think, was the last one I actually got a, I guess you could say, a legit, semi-wide release. Um, 
it's watchable. It, it's competently made. Uh, it's not a bad movie. Uh, it's just not nothing too memorable. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that's okay. one I totally skipped. Uh, May 18th. Here's one of the certified disasters of the season. Mm. Even though, even to this day, I play the soundtrack because I love Katie Lang. And that is even cowgirls get the blues. Oh, God. The fan dance. Adaptation of a difficult novel. Mm-hmm. An unfilmable novel, Uma, basically. Uma Thurman, Pat Morita. I mean, that tells you right there. Uma Thurman, Pat Morita, Katie Lang. Gus Van Sant. Rain Phoenix. Uh, a lot of people. Yeah, that was on the shelf for a long time. Um I believe the story I heard, it actually had its world premiere at the Toronto Film Festival the year before, and it was a disaster, uh, unmitigated disaster, and so they had to recut it, and then, they oh. and then they released it, you know, in May, and that didn't do anything, and that was one of those dream projects for Van Sant, like, he, he, yeah. uh, there was one of those deals where, like, he was at, years and years earlier, he saw the author at a book signing and said hey i'm going to make a film of your book one day and the author is like okay you know one of those deals and he just kept at it and um it's one of those you watch the movie and you realize i you watch the really you realize you wonder okay is the source material better than this it has to be but then you also wonder like what's in the source material that is interesting that appealing that feels that this should be made it it feels like a true warmed over 1960s hippie dippy movie but not even a good one you know mm-hmm. so it's yeah uh and then but well you know, he, yeah, so. he shouldn't worry about it because uh decades from now someone will remake it shot for shot and we'll, we'll yeah. see how that goes there have been many great drivers but only one great passenger when i'm really moving stopping car after car after car Moving so freely, so clearly, so delicately that even the sex maniacs and the cops can only blink and let me pass. How exciting. The creators of Drugstore Cowboy and My Own Private Idaho now bring to the screen the extraordinary novel by Tom Robbins that enchanted a generation. Grandiose, lyrical, erotic, and Girl Scout oriented. Uma Thurman, Lorraine Bracco, Angie Dickinson, Pat Morita, Keanu Reeves, John Hurt, Rain Phoenix, Roseanne Arnold, Ed Begley Jr., Crispin Glover, Buck Henry, Carol Kane, Sean Young. I, I've read the novels. Tom Robbins wrote that, and I I thoroughly enjoy. But I respond to Tom Robbins anyway as a general rule, and I like the novel. But uh, yeah, it's it's not the kind of thing that translates well into film. It's uh, you know, it's a lot of um, just uh, intellectual stuff that translates better uh, when you're reading it than it would be cinematically. So yeah, uh, totally bad idea to. Okay, the following week, uh, the first attempt at a summer blockbuster comes with Maverick. Mel Gibson assumes the James Gardner role from the TV series. But Garner's still there as mm-hmm. the second fiddle. Uh, and uh, Donner, Richard Donner directs, who's 
typically yeah. a very reliable filmmaker. I want to be a blockbuster, and it was a hit. It made a people don't. It, yeah. it was one of those quiet films that made a hundred million dollars. It, uh, it yeah, it the thing is, I rem- I remember enjoying it, but uh, it, it never pops in my mind. It's never popped in my mind since. So I've never had an occasion where I've thought, "Hey, I'll rewatch Maverick." I've never given it a second thought. Yeah, there are these phenomenons in the summer I've noticed where there will be a movie that is a block, you know, a technical blockbuster, makes a hundred million dollars, and. It's like it's literally a I guess a take the money and run kind of scenario because you're like well they obviously they left it open for a sequel and uh, when are we gonna get the sequel and so you know they you know, they left Maverick and they're like well we're obviously gonna get a Maverick two at some point we never got a Maverick two uh, I remember SWAT was another one and SWAT's actually a good movie good summer mm-hmm. movie and I was like well we should get a SWAT two at some point uh, and I think we did straight to video but. Never got yeah. a theatrical SWAT D- too. Die Swatter. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Maverick. Uh, the problem, uh, I mean, Maverick, like you know, it is mod- it is extremely well made. I mean, top notch, top budget. Richard Donner, no slouch as a filmmaker. Um, it's a little. It is long by about fifteen minutes. Too long, and there's way too many double crosses. You get a little dizzy in the last twenty minutes of the film. Everyone double crossing each other. It too has a final twist that is kind of cute that is cute but is a little exhausting uh, at the end um but you know there are three stars and you know i i actually responded to the the extended sequence with west studi doing a uh, not, uh no graham green graham green doing a comic version of a uh hip uh indian chief who uh befriends maverick i remember that being the highlight yeah yeah, and I thought, and I remember it being an unusual movie for Jodie Foster, because it was a mm-hmm. big Hollywood summer fluff that uh, she wasn't necessarily uh, usually attached to at the time. Um, I saw it. I saw it theatrically, and I can't tell you two things that happened in that movie. <laughs> I'm going to be honest; I don't remember there's a runaway, anything. There's a runaway stage coke sequence that is yeah pretty. Uh, I remember that was being pretty impressive. Like it was like. A mm-hmm. big budget state runaway stagecoach sequence. Like you didn't get those very often. And westerns done right and you know kept to you know uh, to their traditions. They always will do well at the box office. Remember, uh, we're just coming off of Tombstone, which was a surprise Christmas hit. And so Maverick also is in that vein of a studio western, giving the audience another one. And in fact. You know, we're going to get a Western later on in the summer that tries to be different, and it doesn't do too well. Right. Yeah. Okay, May 25th. Bad. Just so bad. Beverly Hills Cop 3. <laughs> John Landis directed this one, right? And it's just so inert. It, it looks yeah. just so lifeless. To hear Landis tell the story, head of the studio called him up. I believe it was Sherry Lance at the time. said, hey... Uh, Want you to do Beverly Hills Cop Three? And he's like, "Okay." Did you ask Eddie? Is Eddie going to be in it? Because they had a falling out. And according to Landis, he's like, "No, no, no. Eddie asked for you." He's like, "Really?" He's like, "Well, okay. I'll I'll do it." And it was a rush job. Uh, he gets on set and he's like, "All right, let's get to it." All right, Eddie. Uh, what do you, how do you want to improv in this scene? And Eddie Murphy's like, "No, no, no. I'm not going to improv here." He goes, "Um." 
Axel's a man now, and so he's not wisecracking every two minutes. And Landis went, according to Landis, he went, well, uh-oh. Um, well, if Axel's not wisecracking, I don't know if we have a movie here. Um, so, you know, so I had to work around the times Eddie didn't feel like wisecracking. And you watch the movie, some, and, you, and you can see it. You know. I just read some interview with Eddie Murphy. It's not a new interview. I think it's like the last Playboy interview he did. Yeah, and, 92, uh, I think. Yeah. Well, and he talks about Landis in in none too glowing terms, right? And uh, you know, I guess there's a reason why uh, everybody's back for this new coming to America, except for him. It's mm-hmm. Craig Brewer directing this DM. Yeah. They just mm-hmm. didn't quite get along, even though you know Landis is uh, Landis kind of helped put him on the map cinematically. They do a lot of action scenes. They're like, okay, yeah. we're just gonna have to up the action. In this film, and it just, it, mm-hmm. and you can any any little moments of like levity in it are kind of mm-hmm. at the mercy of Landis, you know, with his cameos of his. Like George Lucas has a cameo in there, and yeah. uh, you know, and there's a couple other little gags that you're like, okay, well that's a Landis thing, and that's giving me it's something a, to it's, look at. You know, you you could say that Axel Foley was a man in that one, but. Uh, if that's what Eddie Murphy wanted to approach him, but um, mm. it's just a stupid setting. I mean, it's a, it's mm. a, just a kiddish, it literally a kiddish setting. But the only mm. thing that is in any way to be remarked upon uh, about this movie is if there's a Ferris wheel scene that's yeah. mm-hmm. that's slightly better than everything else in the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it it has a you know that's a neat sequence, uh, and you're like okay, you know. And the thing about a Beverly Hills Cop movie, if you look at any of them, one, two, or three, all you need is like a few wisecracks and about three, four good action sequences, uh, and a few you know, a couple of good comic dialogue scenes to connect them. You, you know, we're not talking like you know anything that's you know going to invent reinvent the wheel here. But they can't even, you know, they they mm-hmm. couldn't even do that uh, here, and it just feels well. That's tired. a that's a problem too with with con- continuing a story uh, that essentially worked on the basis of it being a fish out of water story, because mm-hmm. eventually that character gets out of the water. <laughs> you know, right. it's like it, it's not playing with that card anymore. So you got to come up with some, some other trick. You know, there's something wrong when John Ashton doesn't even return for the third. Ah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. Okay, the same day, we have uh, Federal Hill, which is the Michael Corrente uh, crime movie. I remember there being a lot, a lot of talk about Michael Corrente. Was it based on this movie, or was this his debut movie, or was it something no, before? That was his debut movie. Um, so it's based on, uh, based on that, and then from that he got um, American Buffalo. Which, on the surface, seems like it would be a prestige project. <laughs> American mm-hmm. Buffalo. <laughs> was this like a Sundance thing? It was Federal a Sundance film? thing. It was a Sundance film. Uh, and the one, the, the interesting thing about that, it was actually filmed in black and white, but when they released it on video, they colorized it. Mm. It was a Miramax They colorized film. it. Yeah, I think yeah. It, so, I think so I remember it, that. It wasn't... 
it wasn't shot in color and they made it black and white for the theatrical. It, they actually had to colorize it. Right. Wow. I I think so, yeah. That's and it was like going to be the it was going to be Nick Turturro's big, you know, coming out, you know, like ooh, Nick Turturro's the new new guy, he's like his brother. And he's he's pretty remarkable in the film. And uh it just uh so it's a really I just rewatched it uh a little while ago. Uh and it's really a, it's a good it's a good it's one of the better Mean Streets knockoffs. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, Mean Streets. I got that on TV right now. I put it on pause when I started the show. Um, Also on that day, Bernardo Bertolucci, you know, every time I read this title, I think I I sing it in the tune of Elton John's Little Genie. (laughs) So it's (laughs) it's like, oh, little Buddha, Buddha. (laughs) you got so much love. (laughs) Little Buddha. Keanu Reeves. As the Buddha. As As the the Buddha. Buddha. I, I've never, I, honestly, I, honestly, I've never seen it all the way through. From what I've, if I remember from the Peter Biskin Miramax book, uh, Harvey Scissorhands really did a number on this one. So there is a, uh, there is a, there is a different version, a, Ber- a Bertolucci version of this that I have to assume is probably a better version than what was released. One would hope. From what I hear, yeah. anyway. Yeah. yeah, but you forget that. You forget that Keanu Reeves worked with Bernardo Bertolucci. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of those one of those odd pairings that um, must have been quite an experience. But um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, the following following week on May twenty seventh, there's a big fat certifiable hit that grossed one hundred and thirty in the U S. three hundred and forty one worldwide, and that is the Flintstones. When you yeah. think of the casting, first of all, the casting was kind of picture perfect. I mean, you wouldn't cast anyone else in these roles. John mm-hmm. Goodman as Fred and Rick Moranis as Barney. Mm-hmm. And then you got Rosie O'Donnell as Betty Rubble. It was, uh, do we like this movie? <laughs> I know we don't well, like I, the second one. <laughs> I, I, I never saw it. And it wasn't because I was adverse to seeing it. It is by the time nineteen ninety four rolled around, I'm like sixteen years <coughs> old. Yeah. And so this is totally outside my uh, my purview. Now, if I if this movie had come out ten years earlier, I'd be all over it, and it'd probably be my favorite film. I I do admit when I would see the trailer, I was I was uh, very impressed with the production design. You know, the car and the the, the house and the clothing. I was yeah. like, man, they really they really did a live action. Truly a live action Flintstones, and so and when I remember when it finally came on HBO a year later, and I would watch ten minutes here, ten minutes there, I was like, you know, they, you know, I would just watch the production design, you know, just watch for like, you know, the, you know, it, it looked cool seeing that stuff, you know, in 3D as it were, yeah, animated. And so I mean, I I don't know, I do remember the thing was uh, they wanted uh, Sharon Stone to play the character Sharon Stone, but she turned it down. Uh, yeah. to do, I don't know, Intersection or some other bad movie. Uh, so they got, what, Liz Taylor to play Sharon Yeah, Stone. that's what I was going to mention. They brought in uh, Liz Taylor, who hadn't done a movie in quite a while at that point, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I saw it theatrically. I, I actually did go see it, uh, and it was 
It is a triumph in production design. You're right. Uh, it does look great. I mean, they couldn't have done a better job bringing that that uh, bringing it to life. You know, like you mm-hmm. said, to the third, third dimension. But the, it's just, you know, there's just the story's just so uh, blah. I guess you know they just <laughs> they didn't do a whole do lot with it. Something like the Adams Family movie. Yes, exactly. Where, I mean, which also was you know they brought that to life, but you know they had a little mm-hmm. fun. Tweaking it, or the Brady Bunch movie the following year, where you get the production design right, and then you gotta, you gotta tweak it a little somehow. Yeah. But well, but something yeah, with something like the Adams Family, you had the contrast of them associating with the, the normal people, you know, and that's where a lot mm-hmm. of the comedy came from. Uh, but where mm-hmm. where are the normal people in the Flintstones that don't normally occupy that world? You know, where are the contrast there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. Uh, the last spring. Do we know what the last spring is? No, we don't. I don't. <laughs> I am curious. The last spring, a group of high school friends who have been on the same softball team for twenty years deal with the breakup of their team. And there's, there's <laughs> I do remember. That I, I do remember also I in May. I don't know if it's in there, but also that May, uh, the two other two other films that people talked about were. Uh, Kika Almodovar in the movie came out that May. It was controversial with Peter Coyote. And it wasn't very good. Had a quote-unquote rape scene played for laughs, I think, was a big controversy. Wow. And that one, Kika. Oh, and the last River Phoenix movie came out, Silent Tongue. It was also in May. Oh, yeah. did it really? Yeah. Okay. That's not it's on my awful. calendar here. But, yeah. It's also awful. So. I wonder. I wonder how the director's cut it out. No, no, no. <laughs> Silent Tongue. I show Silent Tongue is March first. Hmm. Anyway, I just remember it as a Cisco Neighbor having it in May. So I don't know. it might have been a limited release or something yeah. that was making it. Well, they probably around. they probably just they probably just spent two months keeping a Silent Tongue about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Okay. Uh, June 1st, a movie called Windrunner, uh, mm. which I see is a uh, a young man in high school moves with his mother to a town in the U.S. Southwest where his father is serving time in a penitentiary. There, he is discriminated against by his peers because he is the son of the convict. Very small mm. movie, I'm sure. But uh, he got some kind of theatrical. Uh, June 3rd, the Cowboy Way, Kiefer Sutherland, and uh, who's the other guy in Woody, that? Uh, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's one of those movies that is you look at it now. That is that is one of those movies that's all about the uh, charm and star power of Woody Harrelson. I mean, Kiefer's Kiefer has top billing and he's fun in it, but that's all about uh, the charm and star power of Woody Harrelson. Mm-hmm. And it goes to this theory that my uh, a friend of mine has that. Woody Harrelson, like Bill Paxton, is one of those actors who, even in the worst film, he is always the bright spot. He's mm. the one; he'll be mm. the one good thing in any movie. I, I've yet to like been able to like uh, disprove that. Even in looking at Woody Harrelson's bad movies, like it's like no, Woody's the bright spot in the movie. Um, so yeah, Cowboy Way is one of those. You know. It, it adds up to nothing, but Woody's a lot of fun in that movie. 
I remember when it came out, and I just had zero interest in that. And I said, there is no way I'm going to see that. So no way for the Cowboy Way for me, and I have not seen it in the intervening years. So There's a couple of fun scenes in there. He has a lot of fun with Mark Helgenberger. Uh, it's kind of the the uh, lusty female uh, you know, uh, sidekick. He's a lot of fun. And uh, Ernie Hudson's fun as a cop on a patrol for patrolman on a horse mm-hmm. he's always wanted to be a cowboy um, please please you had me on march helgenberger okay <laughs> also on that day a documentary sequel the endless summer 2 yeah yep. i never saw the one first was... one so yeah. I, I didn't see the sequel i didn't see the sequel but i remember it was out Twenty-eight years later, after the first one, the first one was made in '66, I believe. I'll just stick to the Dogtown and Z Boys doc. Much better. <laughs> then I have also on that day a movie called The Princess and the Goblin, an animated film, which uh, Is that Don Bluth. No, hmm. it's hmm. Uh, Joseph Gines. It's a German name, um, but. Uh, it says it was completed in 91, but not released until 94, at least in the States. Uh, anyway, that came out on that day as well. Also on that date, we have Renaissance Man. Renaissance Man is that Danny DeVito military thing, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, Penny Marshall's follow-up to A League of Their Own. Uh, I saw this many a time on uh, HBO. It's one of those films that, uh, I don't know, on HBO, it's like... Uh, one of those things that sucks you Yeah, he is. Uh, and DeVito's actually quite good in it. And, um, you know, the young, a lot of the young actors are, you know, you could tell they're, like, going to be some talent. And Wahlberg, it's a Wahlberg's first film. Wahlberg's in there. Lilo Brancato is in there, coming off of Bronx Tale. Um, and who can forget everyone's favorite conservative, Stacey Dash, coming off of Clueless. <laughs> uh, or, no, before Clueless. I take it back. So, Gregory Hines is probably the the most tolerant and understanding drill instructor in film history. Uh, so it's a it's a goofy uh, military teen comedy. It's just kind of the goofy hybrid. Um, but there are scenes, you know. It, but it has that Penny Marshall uh, sweetness to it. And it's not yeah. as good as big. It's not as good as big or leave their own. But there's a sequence where they're doing a drill in the rain, and Lilo Brancato recites the speech from Henry V, and uh, somehow that scene works. So it's a weird movie. Well, I always regarded it as just another one of those dismissible touchstone movies. You know, they they kind of all bled in together, and I think that was a touchstone, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was. I believe it was. Touchstone, Hollywood Pictures. The next week, a lackluster sequel, I think, uh, so much so that, you know, I skipped it. (laughs) Yeah. borrow Adam's term. Uh, City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold. Yep. Mm, This one... I did see this one. I will say that, and the, I think it's worth noting that this is supposedly, you know, there's always been that urban legend that uh, that uh, Bruno Kirby's career was derailed when he failed to sign on for City Slickers Two, 
And the official word was, of course, that he wanted more money than they were willing to give him, and he uh, that was Billy Crystal's side of the story anyway. And he, after this, his career pretty much became non, for the most part, became non-existent. I mean, what, what he didn't do a whole lot, and there's always who are you talking this, about? We're talking about Bruno Kirby. Uh, how his oh. career, because he failed to appear in this film, and there's always been this story that he was, um, uh, that he, that that basically Billy Crystal did what he could to, because he wouldn't participate in the film, that he did what he could to derail his career, and that that was one oh. of the reasons why he hardly turned up in anything else up until his death, and they never worked together again, that's for sure, and uh, and and he was. <laughs> You know, up until this point, his career was pretty much on fire. But if you look at his resume, it it, it doesn't look good. And I know that uh, oh, one of the uh, I think it was uh, the critic for USA Today. I can't remember her name. I'm friends with her on Facebook actually. But she she actually asked Billy Crystal about it in an interview, and he got really angry uh, when she brought it up. Uh, he just was not happy. They didn't want to discuss it. And so. Anyway, I think where there's smoke, there's fire on on that, in my opinion. Uh, and it's, I, and it's I don't know because, how much I don't yeah, know how much ahead. Billy Crystal uh, power he had even in '94 to derail a derail a career of a uh, character actor. Um, yeah, well, I, I I know they had a falling out. Uh, I what I'd always heard was uh, the story I always heard from Bruno on Bruno Kirby is that he thought Billy, you know, could kind of boss him around and. Bruno Kirby's like, look, I worked with, you know, I worked, I was in Godfather 2. I've worked with, you know, De Niro and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Biggies and Nicholson and all that, you know, I'm not just some sidekick. So, you know, so they had like that falling, the friendship falling out deal. And then, uh, either way, uh, if they, I don't know if that movie would have worked with Bruno Kirby. It would have been better because I can only take John Lovitz in small doses and, uh, and, no, and then they bring back you know Jack Palance, and and that you talk about stretching credibility to to claim that he's a twin, that that's his twin brother. Uh, that's really, that's really stretching uh, credibility. So yeah, uh, I remember the uh, I remember the I went to a Bobcat Goldthwait concert when the first City Slickers was a big hit, and Bobcat Goldthwait opened up his act by saying, uh, "City Slickers, uh, a movie about." Four middle-aged guys that go off to the wilderness to to find their smile or something, and he's like, "Yeah, that movie's definitely not made for me." Or, um, <laughs> anyway, you know, I, the, I saw the, it the though, first and, one. The first one has genuine heart and is genuinely yeah. good. And uh-huh. uh, they obviously with the sequel, they're like, "Well, how do we get bring back Jack Palance?" And basically, they're like, "Well, we can't do Arthur too because that ghost thing just doesn't work." <laughs> so they're like, yeah. well, twin brother, that's that's better than a yeah. ghost, right? And uh, and actually, twin brother is not better than a ghost. It's just as bad. Uh, Let me just say that I was because I I go through every month to to post on our social media pages, you know, on this date in Movie Geeks United history, you know, and I post an interview that we premiered on that date to kind of go back through our archives. And uh, mm-hmm. this month I was shocked. I went back and I was like, I interviewed John Lovitz, and and I could not remember interviewing him, but apparently I did, and it was mm-hmm. 
so many years ago this month. Huh. I like I like Lovitz like in A League of Their Own or in Happiness, where he yeah. does like yeah. ten minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's yeah, hysterical. Yeah, yeah. But when you give he's him, he's got like the a, funniest. He's got the funniest line in the League of Their Own. Right. See how see how it works is the train moves, not the station. Right. <laughs> and so you know <laughs> that is great stuff. But when you give him a full supporting role, um, it's like nails on a chalkboard. And then for mm-hmm. some yeah. reason, Daniel Stern, who is actually very good in the first one, uh, even when he's all hyper is so hyper in the second one uh that i mean between him and lovitz i mean you just this is not a trip you want to go on like you really want to run away yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, okay also also on that date let me tell you this i saw this movie early because I, i guess we got a print of it early and uh so i had to screen it for quality control at the theater and I watched it, and I was like, oh, my God, this movie is fantastic. This movie works, like, better than it has any right to. And the following night, uh, Dennis Hopper was speaking in Orlando. Uh, and I was wanting to go there just to tell him how great I thought this movie was. Because it was the ki- it was a, a kind of an under-the-radar movie. And that, mm-hmm. of course, is Speed. Yep. Uh, Debont Speed. Uh, that I, I had no it, expectations for before watching it, but man, yeah, it works. I saw it. A, I think a week or two weekends before it opened, went to me and my mom went to a one of those Saturday night screenings that they would do, yeah. you know, sneak previews. And back then, you know, they would do the sneak preview, and then you could stay and see the movie. The double bill, but, yeah, yeah. And so I remember. So talk about double bill. It was speed followed by when when a man loves a woman. There's your double bill right there. Uh, <laughs> that's called a tonic yeah. for you right there. You're all jacked up after speed, and then you go see when a man with a That brings you down right to earth. And I saw speed. Audience went crazy. And it was one of those movies, you're watching this movie, it's like, okay, when is this movie going to like go wrong? Because there's no way, no, no movie has a right to be this good. And not mess up. Like there's nothing wrong with this movie, and it's just going and going and going and going. You know that. And the thing is, you know, if you saw the trailer, even then, all you saw was the bus. And you didn't, and so when that movie starts, you're like, wait, wait, what are we doing? We're doing a this section. You know, you're getting you get three for the price of one. Uh, everyone, you know, of course, if you hadn't seen Point Break, and at that point, Point Break was still a little cult film that wasn't a hit that only a handful of people knew about. You know, everyone was like, well, Keanu Reeves can be an action star. Sandra Bullock became an instant star. Uh, even yeah. though she'd been coming up on the radar, she was like a demolition man and wrestling learning his Hemingway, but she was going to be a star. And Hopper and Hopper was having a great year because he was just coming off of um, Red Rock West like two months earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was like vintage Hopper. Uh, so, yeah. Every, he, every, everybody, everybody's career got a jump start in that movie. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, it kind of it made Yon Debunk too. It's just yeah, that yeah. you know, I rewatched it. Uh, I rewatched it a few months ago, and um, I think that uh, they because it's one of those impossible scenarios, and you're thinking to yourself, how do they maintain this uh, premise mm-hmm. without cheating? And I think mm-hmm. they do a great job at that. Uh, it, but at the same time, the the main flaw for me is every single character actor on that bus 
is terrible. I mean, their performances are awful. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with the passengers. I think the unsung hero of that film, people don't uh, didn't know that at the time it was revealed later. It got an un, an uncredited rewrite by um, Joss Whedon, and so a lot wow. of the uh, dialogue is Joss Whedon, and so that really kind of ups the ante on the quality of that dialogue. And also, um, it was a good showcase for uh, for Jeff Daniels, and he was going to have a good year because Dumb and Dumber is coming later on. Mhm. Yeah, it's a masterful, masterfully done movie. Uh, I saw it opening weekend, and I uh, was quite impressed. And, I remember uh, it, it. It opened the weekend of the Bronco chase. So I remember mm-hmm. there were a lot, there were a lot of uh, bad late night no, jokes. No, it about, didn't. No, it didn't. It opened the mm-hmm. weekend before the Bronco chase. Oh, I was going to say. I think it. so. Yeah. And we were, and so I, well, I remember the when the Bronco chase happened. There was a lot of bad speed jokes correlating the Bronco chase with speed. Yes. Because it mm-hmm. happened the week after, and it was in the vernacular. Speed was. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're about to, we're about to get to that. Uh, June fifteenth, The Lion King, uh, an almost billion dollar grocer. That was a mm-hmm. huge movie, and tying this back into my time promoting, I I won, I won like third place in the nation for my marketing of that movie, and Disney gave me. I think five thousand dollars and a year supply of coke, or oh, something wow. like that. Wow, a year um, supply of cocaine. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Wow, we're talking <laughs> Disney here. They, they they got the funds. The Lion King. I do remember seeing it. I'm typically not an animation person, but it felt like a, um, a you know, uh, the kind of uh, foolproof, timeless story that that worked uh, emotionally, and obviously it did, judging by how much it grossed. Mm-hmm. But I've never returned to it. And that includes it, the remake. It is. I mean, it was a. It was, they upped the ante in the animation because it was, it was their follow-up. It was the first thing since Aladdin, uh, and the animation uh, was bolder. The story was darker and deeper for even for children. By for children, uh, and the characterizations were a little deeper, a little, a little more depth, had a little more uh, emotional resonance to it, and. Uh, of course, what's interesting that that was like the I think at the moment for a moment there the fourth highest grossing film of all time, and then Gump yeah. came a month yeah. later and like knocked it out. Uh, and so Gump yeah, came. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> and then what's interesting about this new Lion King, the one that just come, that just came out, that a lot of critics weirdly dumped on for no apparent reason. Um, it has stayed in the top five for eight weeks straight. And that is pretty remarkable consistency in this day and age. Usually movies do not stay in the top five that long in this day and age, yeah. but it is still in the top five. I, You're uh, talking about the remake. The remake, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I have weeks. to admit, I <laughs> thought that I saw The Lion King when it came out. Uh, I thought it was fine, but hardly the event that everybody else seems to think that it is. I... Uh, it's it is the animation is is good. Uh, the story is you know it's 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 interesting enough. But once was once was enough for me, and I just I, I there are at least a half a dozen better Disney movies that I could name without even thinking about them that I think are much superior. And uh, I just never understood why that one just seemed to 
to to get into the national consciousness the way it did. It, well, it, 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 it was so it was so well marketed too, and and it I was attached so. to it was attached to an Elton John soundtrack that you that played on a loop. You could not mm-hmm. get away from those songs. Yep. I mean, so one definitely complemented the other in terms of yeah, just the music alone. And it has a primal appeal, like some of the other, you know, of parental death and uh, yeah. uh, child, you know, the shame. And uh, I mean, it deals a little, you know, with shame and uh, blame. Uh, and so these are very primal emotions that kids can uh, really mm-hmm. get into. And uh, I mean, that's yeah, it, 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 you know, when you look at it, you could see it as a very calculated structure. Where mm-hmm. they they look at what worked over emotionally in previous Disney movies, and they incorporated it all into this one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's not a not a bad movie by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination. I I under I appreciate it for uh, what it what it does well, but I just I just don't think it's one of the top tier Disney films. But that's just mm-hmm. that's just me. So anyway. Okay. The following uh, two days later, getting even with Dad. Which uh, was uh, remade later as the Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, but this one <laughs> stars uh, Macaulay Culkin oh. and Ted Danson. That unbelievable yeah. chemistry they shared. This was what? the uh, this was the swan song year of Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, he has, like, three films this year. He has this Page Master and the one good film Richie Rich at the end of the year, yeah. and Getting Even with Dad was just one of those. You know, it was probably released two years too late and it's like you know bad john hughes you know knockoff um yeah and uh just doesn't work it was one of those films even on hbo i couldn't watch it you know it would come on so you know yeah. i can't even watch this on hbo yeah yeah it's a howard deutsch movie there you go so like you said a uh, uh, john hughes alumni and ted danson is uh you he and the thing is Ted Danson they always try to make him you know I guess because through and the baby they try to like oh we'll put him in these family films he's not a uh, he's not usually a very warm actor there's something a little cool and cold about him and he's you know they they don't they try to tamper that down and that's when it does he doesn't work that way mm-hmm it's a good point yeah okay. Also on that day, this is the night of the O.J. car chase. And it's also the opening night of Wolf. Jack yep. Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer, Mike Nichols. And I remember Nicholson saying, you know, we did well considering that nobody went to the movies that Friday night because they were all glued <laughs> to the television set watching that chase. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. did still do relatively well for a movie that, um, you know, I've, I have rewatched Wolf in the intervening years and uh it's fine it doesn't feel as good as it could be mike nichols is a really odd director for it and i can't really see much of him in the movie anyway but um a, there was that it, it's weird. it's one of those where they think you think that nicholson is perfect for it but that's not enough to make the movie good or great it's a good movie it's just not a great one the opening is um the opening is is terrific as Nickel is kind of this milk toast. He's actually quite good as playing this milk toast kind of guy, and gets awakened and his inner beast gets brought out, and you just wish they'd gone a little further with kind of the bestiality of the whole situation, 
there's a whole spate where they went back to like to the old stories and like did these adult versions. You know, cause, uh, you had Frankenstein, you had Wolf and uh, Dracula, Coppola's Dracula. They're trying to do these modern or these adult takes on these old stories, and Wolf is that, and uh, and uh, they don't make enough. You know, you have Spader as kind of the bad guy, and they don't make enough use of Spader facing off with Nicholson. I do like the final confrontation. I just wish it went further. And uh, it's one of those things, you can tell the the obvious template that they have here is the fly, but there's just more passion and and more energy in the fly than there is in Wolf. But mm-hmm. the production yeah. of Wolf, the production value of Wolf is pretty. Yeah, uh, that's just it. Uh, it it really uh, uh, distinguishes itself with the production. I mean, from uh, from Morricone's score to uh, the art direction of the production design, and they mm-hmm. used uh, the Bradbury Building for his office, and so you have those elevators that look like cages that they're coming in and out of, and it feels thematically right for it. It's a handsome-looking movie. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a letdown. I was disappointed with it. Uh, I remember the, uh, the story that I always hear. My um, my good friend, uh, Mike Clark, who is the former chief critic for USA Today, uh, he actually gave Wolf four stars, and he gave Lion King three and a half that weekend. And he says he got a note from um, Katzenberg, who was upset uh, that he didn't give Lion King four, and he gave he gave but he gave Wolf four, because he <laughs> wanted that headline USA Today four stars Lion King, so he was uh, very upset. Mm. Well, I'm sure he wiped away his tears with mountains of cash. <laughs> I was gonna say uh, he wanted the the eye of the tiger, but anyway. Uh, uh, June June twenty fourth, Lawrence Kasdan's. <clears throat> more serious take on the legend of Wyatt Earp uh, compared to Tombstone, which was much more successful. Mm-hmm. But is uh, Wyatt Earp, a, is it a good movie? It's a long Not, movie. It's a long <laughs> movie. It's, um, it, uh, is very proud of that film. Apparently there's a four-hour cut. I think it was released on Laserdisc. I don't know if it, it ever was. got to... I don't think I got to tape or DVD, Blu-ray. I know the later disc was the four-hour preferred cut. I never saw that. Um, it's one of those films that it wants to like tell the real story, you know, get beyond the myth and get to the truth of it. And that sounds a lot like okay, that sounds cool, but it's such a chore. And you figure Costner and Kasdan doing a western, and you're like, okay, that that sounds an epic western, and you're like. Costner feels a, kind of disengaged in the performance. Uh, Dennis Quaid's actually quite good yeah, at uh, yeah. Doc Holliday. Well, if you think about if you think about it, their their previous western that they did together, which was Silverado, was really like yeah. the tombstone of its day. It's right. it's it's very breezy and and fun to watch. But poor Dennis Quaid, because he put his every he put his whole body to the test doing that movie. And by any measures, it's a very good performance. But he had the specter of Val Kilmer, who everybody adored in Tombstone. Yeah, yep. he gets Kilmer, 
not only the performance, he just had, Kilmer had the better lines, he was just funny and charming, and he was just cool, and it was just one of those, it was just one of those magical supporting performances that everyone, like, talks about, and Quaid just, you know, you know, seeing now Quaid does give a really good performance, uh, it's just, you know, it was one of those movies, they, they probably should have waited, to, they, instead of the summer, they probably should have waited till Christmas, should have waited a little longer. Yeah. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I do like the James Newton Howard score. That's the one thing that I remember most about it. But, uh, mm. Does he have the horns in it again? There are horns in it, but there are horns in fucking 90% of the movies that came out in the, the 90s. They were big <laughs> symphonic scores. Um, okay. The next week, here's an interesting disaster. And this had disaster written on it during production, too, because those two lead stars did not get along. Presumably. I Love Trouble. Yeah. Nick Nolte, Julia Roberts. I could have... It's one of those deals in hindsight, like, I could tell you, like, they're not going to get along. It's like, one is a uh, prima donna, and the other one is Nick Nolte. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One of them bathes. So yeah, so it's a yeah, it's not a. It wants it wants to be you know his girl Friday, but updated. Yeah, and yeah. just you know, and I I get the feeling they just cast it without testing them. And the thing with if you want to do his girl Friday, you really need a screen test, like make sure they have the chemistry before you just cast them, and presume they will have the chemistry because they didn't have it. Uh, also on that date, Little Big League. I'm actually a quite a fan of that film. I think it's actually a very underrated baseball movie. Okay. Mike drop. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> I I think uh, I prefer to rookie, I, and I like rookie of the year. I prefer to rookie of the year though. Yeah, yeah. those are some audacious words. <laughs> <laughs> it's a smart movie about. It's it's actually a very smart movie. Uh, with a, you know, considering the premise of the film, it takes it seriously. Uh, yeah. and that's what you kind of want in a, in a, for a film to do. If you can have a ridiculous premise, take it seriously and we'll believe it. And it does that. Mm-hmm. July 1st, a John Hughes production, Baby's Day Out. Right. Baby, yeah, there's something, yeah, there's something a little... A baby like balancing itself on scaffolding. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's some, some funny child endangerment that. issues um, that uh, wouldn't yeah. fly today. Yeah. Right. I mean, the obvious inspiration is the um, the baby Herman sequence, the opening of Roger Rabbit, is kind yeah. of the inspiration for that whole movie. And there are some kind of jaw dropping sequences of like what what they pull off uh and you know uh it's it, it's that it's that it's that Roger Rabbit sequence crossed with the two crooks from Home Alone Joe Montana's the lead crook and so it's one of those movies if you watch like it in 10 minute chunks cause that's kind of how a 10 minute set piece is you get the gist of it and you will laugh but if you watch all 80 minutes of it it might it might be a little taxing so it, it depends oh, no. on uh, how you do it 
it was it was further proof of the sad downward slide of John Hughes in the wake of Home Alone's success, which incidentally I'm not a big fan of Home Alone either, and this was just for me, it was just further proof of a once great director who had given us some movies that would stand the test of time, just slumming it, basically, in my opinion. There are, I mean, I chuckled a couple of times. I'll, I'll give you that. But, you know, by and large, it was just, it, it was pretty painful. So that's my take on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, also on that date, Blown Away. I remember Blown Away. Here's a story. Here's another theater manager story <clears throat> about Blown Away. So as part of the promotion for that, they gave, gave us a uh, like a group of like fifty T-shirts promoting the San Francisco Bomb Squad. It, it had that logo on the shirt, and so I put the box in my back seat. And I was eating somewhere with my girlfriend at the time, and we walked back out to the car, and there were some real Bomb Squad guys who were out in the parking lot looking in my car, and they said, "Are you on the Bomb Squad in San Fra- San Francisco?" I said, no, man, those are, <laughs> and mm-hmm. they're like, well, we're, we're real Bob Squad people here locally. And I, I, so I gave them all a T-shirt. So that was my part to promote the movie. <laughs> and uh, like Wyatt Earp, that movie had the misfortune of coming a month after Speed. Yeah. Uh, so the Mad Bomber movie that just did there's a couple of sequences that are kind of really cool. The opening sequence is really cool where uh, this girl has to keep typing. And if she, doesn't, if she stops typing, it's, it, it, she's going to blow up. And so Jeff Bridget has to uh, uh, defuse the bomb before she runs out of space of typing. That's a cool sequence. And there's another sequence where he thinks this house has a bomb. And we get these close-ups of ignitions like... You know, a light switch turning on, the stove right. being turning on, and, and it's like okay, that's, that's when she that's... and she enters the house. His wife enters the yeah. house and starts turning on so, lights and stuff. Yeah. yeah, those are cool sequences, but the vast, the rest of it is pretty bad. Tommy Lee Jones is literally phoning it in throughout the movie. Uh, although I do love the bit where he discovers you two. That's pretty funny. Um, and then. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you get a little charge seeing Jeff and Lloyd Bridges and scenes together. Uh, you just kind of wish they had better dialogue and were in a better movie. So, yeah, it's a pretty bad movie. I agree. Yeah, big letdown. I had high hopes for that. It looked really, really good. The trailers, I remember leading up to it. I was excited, and uh, my excitement quickly dissipated once I saw it in the theater. So, yeah. yeah. Tommy Lee Jones singing along to YouTube. That is, that's a YouTube clip. That's a GIF. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the one movie where Jeff Bridges sees his own father getting blown away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the better okay. blown away movie is the uh, the one starring the two Corys called Blown Away. That's the better blown away movie. Mm, yeah. Okay. We'll take yeah, it. Yeah, I have rewatch. I did rewatch Blown Away a couple of years ago. It's fine for what it is. I mean, it, it definitely feels of its time. Like an act, like a, a disposable action movie that came out at that time. Mm-hmm. The Shadow. Um, the Shadow came out that same day. Yeah. Alec Baldwin. They were trying to do a franchise, start a franchise for Baldwin. Clearly, another comic book movie, not done well. Uh, you kind of wonder if uh, 
you know, someone's like, hey, why don't we redo the shadow since they're in the comic books? Um, once again, a case of good production design, but, and actually, Baldwin's kind of fun in the movie, and so is, um, Jonathan Winters. Uh, I always like Jonathan Winters. He's fun in it, too. Um, but, you know, I remember when I saw it, I was like, this isn't going to go anywhere. I, I, I knew when I saw it, I was like, nope, you know, this is less, uh, appealing to kids than Dick Tracy was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Right. Written by David Kemp, mm-hmm. and directed okay. by uh, Russ, uh, Russell McCaughey. 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 Yeah, and, and he's a real good visualist. You know, Ricochet, Highlander, and a couple other movies. Uh, the real McCoy. <laughs> all those music. <laughs> all those music videos too, right? The, the Wild Boys, Duran Duran's yeah. Wild Boys. Uh, exactly. Video. Yeah. Uh, the following week. Oh, well, here we go. When I saw when I first saw the trailer when I first saw the trailer of this movie, I thought that's going to be a massive hit. And yet, it still when it came before it came out, it did still feel like <clears throat> and a kind of under the radar, unexpected success. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that it was so global and its success was very unexpected. But yeah. uh, of course, I'm talking about Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Now there's saw, a lot of there's a lot of revisionism about Forrest Gump now mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, I I'm pretty confident that a lot of people that first saw it that loved it now know that it's uncool to say they loved it and so they say oh god I hated that movie because it it pandered and it was you know too too sentimental and all that kind of stuff that makes it uncool and had its heart on its sleeve. But I, I guarantee a lot of those people loved it. And I know there are some people that hated it from the start. I understand. So you don't need to write me emails. But I always knew that Forrest Gump was a piece of shit. <laughs> that's, that's fine. <laughs> it's in the tradition of uh, kind of the Andy Griffith comedy albums. People don't know those. And that southern kind of satire of humor. That's uh, a smart, dumb southerner that, you know, Think you think uh, dumb, but it's actually a little sm- uh, smarter and gets one over on everyone else. Um, uh, I do think it's smart. I know. I remember even at the time, the big thing was that the movie was very. That people thought the movie was very conservative, and that it was pro Gump but anti hippie, anti Jenny. They punished the movie. Everyone always said the movie punishes Jenny for being a hippie and for all her misdeeds and just punishes the, the counterculture movement. Yeah. And uh, that is on the surface. But I remember when I rewatched the movie a few years ago, I, it dawned on me. What's interesting, what I realized is that the audience and critics are judging Jenny. Uh, but the movie is very explicit in that Forrest, the character of Forrest Gump, never judges Jenny for what she does. Uh, he never passes mm-hmm. judgment on her. And I think that's a crucial distinction that needs that shit that yeah. never gets pointed out. Uh, yep. For all that she does, all that we see that she does, and she comes back and leaves him and all that, he never judges her for her behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important. And, I, uh, yeah. yeah. And the mother, thought, and, and Forrest's mother, is not judgmental. In fact, she 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 brings in, she takes in the outsiders, the outcasts, and mm-hmm. she you know as a border. So the movie is very subtle in how it accept, it is accepting 
of those who are not accepted by society. Yeah. Uh, Adam, what do you think? Oh, I was going to say, I saw it opening the opening day when it came out on a Wednesday. I saw it in the first showing, afternoon. Uh, I went solely on the basis of it being directed by Robert Zemeckis, whom I was a big fan of at that point. And I didn't know anything about the movie, knew it was based on a novel, had zero expectations. And I just loved it. I loved it. It was one of those movies that transported me to, you know, uh, when you feel like you've been transported to another world or another place or another, uh, you know, I felt like I was in that world. And uh, I, I, I just, I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. I really did. And in yeah. the intervening years, I have, uh, I have remained a, a fan of the movie as well. Um, I have, I still defend it, uh, I, you know, and they always said that in 94 you were either a, a Pulp Fiction person or a Forrest Gump person. Well, I was a person who loved both of those movies equally. And, uh, you know, and I admit that uh, I do have a sentimental streak that's about a mile wide running up my back, so that uh, probably plays into yeah. it a little bit. Well, but, I, I uh, do too, and it, and it definitely works on those terms. It's, uh, yeah. it's a very uh, effective fable that I think is made less effective the more you look into it. Yeah, because I agree. I, I, what is it saying, Aaron? What's it saying? Um, I think, I mean, the, the takeaway for his Gump is really just kind of um, the character's Gump is his, one, his indomitable spirit, but also in that, and this is kind of the key thing. A lot of what Forrest comes comes in comes in contact with uh, either gets hurt or gets altered or, frankly, dies. So he suffers a lot and he causes a lot of damage, but he's able to kind of keep moving forward. And that's mm -hmm. kind of a you know that's kind of how it works. And so it's a it's a it's a little darker than it, uh, it's given credit for. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think it's the I think it's the perception that a lot of what he's placed in are the darkest chapters of recent American history. Recent meaning mm -hmm. the second part of the 20th century, and right. so to put <clears throat> to put someone who was completely, uh, you know, ill-equipped to uh, understand what he's a part of. Um, it almost bel belittles. It's almost. It's almost gives the audience permission uh, to uh, to not regard those events as, as severe as it was. It puts a happy face on a lot of it. I think mm -hmm. because you're experiencing it through the eyes of someone that doesn't understand the totality of it. Right. Yeah. But it has this dual reality. He doesn't understand the totality. We in the audience understand the totality. So there's this dual reality always going through the movie of what he what he understands and what we understand. And uh, that that's, yeah. uh, that's a unique uh, uh, perspective on it with, with, that a film has. I'm just and it's the same thing with being... And it's the same thing that fuels something like being there or even the world according to Garp. Mm -hmm. You know, they have these dual realities yeah, yeah, going but through. Being, but being there... Exactly. But the the difference in tone between being there and Forrest Gump is vast. 
because right. I think for, I, th- I think being there is totally immersed in the environments it's playing in. It's not mm-hmm. using them as kind of like in in an it, it, being there uses it in a satirical way. I, I don't I don't feel any the bite of any satire in Forrest Gump. It's completely the opposite. It's it's homespun. It's feel good. It's you know mm-hmm. hard on your sleeve kind of stuff. Well, it's more picaresque. I, I okay. was fortunate in that I saw it before there was any hype and uh, people weren't talking about it. It wasn't in, no. the, in the public consciousness. So, I, I, and I've had that advantage several times in my life, and I was so thankful that I was able to see it in that way before it started being a talking point all over the place. Uh, because I, I really, like I said, it was all totally a surprise to me, and I, I was, it was one of those movies where I, I couldn't wait to see where it was going to go, and, and, and like I said, I was pleasantly surprised and pleased. I, I will say, I'm very, I'm, uh, uh, the one thing I do like about it, and I know it's because it goes on the source material, it wasn't, a, it wasn't one of those cases where Forrest Gump all of a sudden becomes a genius, and then he regresses back, because every single movie that deals with some kind of mental impairment or disease that causes mental impairment, they all take the, the plan, the floor plan set out by something like Charlie or, mm-hmm. or something like that, yeah. where they, they start out sick and then they have this experimental treatment and they get much better and then they slowly regress. Like every single third act, they have to slowly regress back. And, and, and so all the people in their lives can reflect on, now what did I learn? Gump stays, and Gump as a character, he does obviously he does grow, but he doesn't grow exponentially. He grows in in little increments, and and he matures. And so that's yeah, which is which is antithetical to what many dramatists Mm -hmm. would tell you should should happen, uh, Mm -hmm. which is interesting for a big studio movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. Okay, next um, next movie. Oh, the fun, fun, fun funny. anecdote. I'll give that fun footnote. John Waters has on record saying he feels that movie is evil, which I always oh. find hilarious. Uh, yeah. John Waters. A troll in Central Park. Do we have anything to say about that? July thirteenth. Nope. <laughs> okay. Nope. Moving along. Uh, uh, July fifteenth. This was a big day. Uh, Angels in the outfield. First of all. Are you aware? Have okay. you seen the cast list of that movie? Like the actual yeah, it's a good cast, isn't it? It's one of those like, wow, they're all in that movie. Like, if only the movie had been good. <laughs> we go through the cast: Danny Glover, Brenda Fricker. Because if you're going to do a baseball movie, you can't do it without Brenda Fricker. Uh, Tony Danza, Christopher Lloyd, Ben Johnson, Jay Sanders, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, Adrian Brody, Matthew McConaughey, Dermot Mulroney, uh, all the young upstarts mm-hmm. are in with a lot of the, uh, you know, a, a lot of the older generation in this movie. Yeah, and like I said, if it had been a good movie, it'd be one of those, wow, like can't believe they were all in that one movie, but it's a bad movie, and so we were kind of stuck saying, wow, I can't believe they were all in that bad movie. Um Anyway, also on that day, David O. Russell made a splash when spank, Spanking the Monkey was released in theaters. Very good movie. 
very dark comedy uh, about incest, but very funny. Uh, <laughs> Love the way you describe it. I know. It's so, it's so unusual for a suburb movie, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, I've always been a fan of that movie. It's very creepy but funny and uncomfortable. Very Sundance night mid nineties type of one of those uncomfortable dark comedies. Yeah. I remember the uh the thing at the at Sundance, it actually beat out the the big controversy, it beat out clerks for the audience award. Uh so so there you go. Yeah. And for a movie about incest. Mother son <clears throat> incest, that's that's to win an audience award. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and you know, Jeremy Davies, he doesn't do enough. He is, he is always such a, you, I think he has, he, we thought maybe he'd have the career that somebody like Joaquin Phoenix has now. Mm-hmm. Cause he's that kind of off, off kilter. Yeah. Presence. I mean, he's creepy in that movie. Uh, Spanking a monkey, you know, of course, I mean his big moment was gonna was Saving Private Ryan. He probably should, he should have been nominated for that for supporting actor. Um, didn't get it. Uh, but yeah, and then of course Charlie Manson. It's a great Manson, God. Hmm. Um. Anyway, also on that date, we had a big, big movie, True Lies, a very Oof. clean, entertaining movie. <laughs> it's one of those movies with uh, I I I mean I love the opening section and I love the um, the final set piece, but in the middle there's a long section that has not aged well. I saw that movie a few years ago, rewatched it. Um, it is kind of startling the uh, hostility towards women that courses through that movie. Um, so yeah. Um, I know it's his divorce movie, so probably the source of that, but still, it's yeah. pretty... It, you know, it's funny, a lot of people like to say that um, Michael Bay was kind of the the illegitimate son of, like, Tony Scott, and um, I don't think so. You look at True Lies, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of Bay in that. Like, like I'm sure Michael Bay studied at True Lies. There's a lot of that in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Cameron is a world-class filmmaker compared to Michael Bay. And like I said, there are some great stuff in True Lies. It was a great return to form for Schwarzenegger after Last Action Hero. But that whole midsection uh, involving uh, tricking his wife because he thinks he's cheating on her and and setting her up, uh, that just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So. Mm. Well... It's a movie that begs the question, remember when Tom Arnold was a thing? Yeah. But uh, uh, I uh, I did like the, the set pieces. Um, I like the chase through the Western Bonaventure. Yeah, no, that's uh, great stuff. Cu- culminating in the rooftop. I think I think in terms of his, his action, it kind of shines the grandiosity of it. Uh, but and he's doing and he's trying to play that within a smaller domestic uh, comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, I thought it worked better than pretty well. 
But, uh, you know, that's not taking into account any political. I know there's been a lot of revisionism about that movie as well, like you expressed with its treatment of women, but also the Arabs, the uh, right. Arab actors. I'm, I'm not that, you know, I don't I don't really bother with the, the, the Arabs. I know there has been talk about how they portrayed the Arab terrorists in that movie, but it's done so comically over the top that it, I don't think it's taken... It, that part of them is to be taken seriously, so I don't see it as that offensive, uh, just because they're played as basically comically dumb terrorists. So you don't you don't see that you don't see that ultimately Jamie Lee Curtis becomes an empowered character. Uh, I mean, I mean, yes, that is kind of the saving grace, but I mean, her big action set piece is a girl on girl catfight in the back of a limousine. Like, I mean, they're they're, they're like two girls on the way to a concert. Uh, and her big set scene. piece is, is stripping for her husband. Right, and so yeah, and so I mean, those, they're just they're just they those 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 images are just they don't they don't they don't they have not aged well. Mm. I don't think. Like I said, the big cat fight between the two girls has not aged well. Uh, you know, like I said, and um, just the whole tone of the film. Um, the dialogue towards women, uh, you know, Tom Arnold, and Tom Arnold's very, very funny, but he, I mean, his whole character is hostile toward his ex-wife. He's constantly, you know, bemoaning his ex-wife and how, you know, evil women are. You know, it just has this, this tone. Charlton Heston is, you know, you know, uh, you know, has a, you know, has a dismissive tone towards women's subordinates. So it's just kind of, it's kind of on, almost unconsciously uh, sexist throughout the film. Yeah, it's been so long since Which, you know, I've seen this it. Is the, I, I mean, don't remember. This is coming from a director who built his career on female leading characters. Yeah, in, I mean, in movies that normally didn't accommodate them. Right. No, I mean it's true. It, it's it's an anomaly of a film. I I I I do believe you know it's his. He's literally in the middle of a divorce. So I I just I I look at it. He is working out a lot of anger yeah. in the film. And then, yeah. And he was really? on his way to on his way to another one in a couple of years after that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. The client came out July twentieth. The John Grisham kick continued. The Joel Schumacher film. Uh, but it kicks off Susan, uh, Susan Sarandon, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, and Brad Renfro. Yeah, Anthony Edwards and uh, Anthony LaPaglia. This uh, kicks off Joel Schumacher's four summer run of hundred million dollar movies. Uh, mm. Client, and uh, yeah, it's one of those. Uh, you know, this is really. I mean, it's a John Grisham thriller, but this is this is almost like a a a a, a, a legal thriller for kids. Is really what this is. It is a legal thriller for kids. Uh, Renfro is actually quite good in the film, and Sarandon got an Oscar nomination. I think it was her third of the decade. She would win the following year with Dead Men Walking, finally. But, um, you know, um, it's not as good as The Firm, because the previous summer, or The Rainmaker a couple of years later, or, you know. So it's one of those, you know, for for about five years there, every Grisham book was being adapted. It was being a hit. Yeah. This is one of those. So... 
it had nothing to do with quality at this point. I mean, Schumacher's a good enough director that he keeps it moving at a clip, and uh, it's you know it's watchable and entertaining on its own merits, but it's not memorable. Okay, I remember it vaguely. I mean, I, I remember watching it, but uh, thinking that it was you know befitting of a supermarket paperback uh, mm-hmm. kind of feel to it. Uh, July 22nd. Anybody see Lassie? See which one? Lassie. Lassie? Actually, I have. Lassie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty good, actually. Yeah. As, okay. I mean, as, uh, these stories go, I mean, you know, given what you, you give them the, you give, you give them the premise, like, we want to do Lassie the movie modern day, and that's your assignment. Uh, and so, like, okay, well, I want to make it good, considering that assignment. They did a good job. So, yeah, Lassie's actually a good movie. <laughs> also on that date, this is the movie that Roger Ebert hated, 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 hated. Uh, and that's uh, <laughs> Rob Reiner's North. Yeah. This is like, uh, this is kind of like, uh, no, I guess it's not. I was going to say it's like Forrest Gump with without the mental impairment. But maybe it's not. Go ahead. <laughs> there are a couple of segments I remember I did chuckle at when supposed to. The Eskimo segment is funny. Uh, I remember that cracked me up. And uh, a couple of lines Alan Arkin has as the judge made me laugh. Um, but yeah, it's not a it's not a really it's not a good film. It, I mean, it's Rob Reiner coming off of A Few Good Men, so it's a real fall from grace. But He'll rebound a year later with American President. So, but uh, it's from Alan Zweibel, the writer, Alan, who came to notoriety like you know years earlier with the film um, Where's Papa. Um, yep. So a great they, movie, uh, I think. Yeah. Okay, the following week, Whit Stillman came out with Barcelona. Was this his debut movie. movie? No, second film, uh, Metropolitan. Okay. Is right. his first film. This is Barcelona. Terrific movie. Um, yeah, great script. Aaron, Chris Eigman is wonderful in the movie. Uh, first time saw Mira Servino in the movie. She's quite good. Um, yeah, I, I, that, that trilogy with Stone movies: Barcelona, Metropolitan, Last Days of Disco. I'm a big fan of those movies. So this is good stuff. I find it interesting that Barcelona grossed more than Black Beauty, which was the next movie, and it was a major studio release. So I, I guess that speaks to <laughs> what he was able to do back then. Yeah. Um, also on that date, it could happen to you. Isn't that the Nicolas Cage uh, lottery Bridge of Fonda yeah. movie? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrific yeah. movie. Terrific. That rom-com. is very good. Yeah. Terrific rom com. They should have kept the original title. Uh, Cop gives way to his two million dollar tip. Better title, um, but yeah, this was Nicholas Cage was on his run here of becoming a star. He had done um, Guarding Tess and Red Rock West earlier in the year. Now he, it could happen to you. Was his summer movie. He'd have a flop in the Christmas time with uh, Trapped in Paradise, also with John Lovitz and Dana Carvey. Both being very annoying, but then uh, the following year would be 
kiss of death and leaving Las Vegas. But it could happen to you. Yeah. Is he's great? He's a great romantic lead. Bridget Fonda is very charming. Rosie Perez steals the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm here. Very Finally, good on a date, um, the comedic behemoth that year really uh, was The Mask. Jim Carrey, $351 million grosser. And Jim Carrey officially, you know, became a even star. more of a phenomenon. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's a fun, it's a live action cartoon, basically. It's a live action cartoon. It's the. Which you could I say the same the, thing about Jim Carrey at that period right, of time. Right. But the actual film itself has cartoon elements. He was inspired by Tex Avery. And I would say it's the. It's probably the only film that's a knockoff of Beetlejuice that works. Um, and the the thing about the mask, it has a lot of it just has a lot of gags, a lot of stuff in it. Jim Carrey's obviously going through the whole movie, but the stuff with the dog is classic comic stuff. And of course, amazingly, the other breakthrough of the mask is that was uh, Cameron Diaz, and she's mm-hmm. actually able to make an impression alongside uh, Jim Carrey. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the mask, the mask is fun. It's fun. Uh, yeah, I sequel? never I never liked it. I mean, I I just I found it so grating. But, uh, <laughs> Did you like Ace Ventura or Dumb and Dumber? I love Dumb and Dumber, yeah. And the first Ace Ventura? I was, I was okay with it. Uh, it wasn't really my... Yeah, it was fine. Hmm. So out of those three, I would say The Mask is probably my least favorite. Did you notice Cameron Diaz, or did you not think she made an impression? No, no, I I noticed her. She made an impression on me. Well, I I have to admit, I like The Mask better than Ace Ventura 1 or 2. Uh, and uh, and about as much as I like Dumb and Dumber, so uh, for whatever whatever. It's and uh, I like I'm a I like Chuck Russell um, at the time. He did this. Mm-hmm. He did Elm Street Three. Uh, mm-hmm. was it, uh, the the, the Blob later, remake. He, the Blob remake. That's fun. Two years later, yeah. he would do Eraser, which is the last yeah. great Schwarzenegger action movie. Um. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, like I said, I had a lot of a lot of fun. Uh. A lot okay. better than Son of the Mask. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, August 1st, Deadbeat. Anybody know Deadbeat? Nope. nope. I don't think I so. About that yeah. it, that's not Dead Bang, which is a John Johnson movie from years earlier. Yeah, that's a great movie. Uh, August 3rd, the third Jack Ryan movie in the... Yeah, it is the third, isn't it? Yeah. Clear and Present Danger? Mm-hmm. Second Harrison The second... One. Second Harrison Ford, yeah. I prefer the solid, to, solid Philip Norris noise movie, right? Yeah. yeah, I prefer it to Patriot Games. Uh, Red October is better than both, uh, but I just rewatched it. It's still pretty good. Uh, Clear and Present Danger. Yeah, yeah. I remember there fun. being a. They got there's a real interest. There's a real funny suspense sequence about uh, uh, finding copy paper copying paper for the printer. Uh, I remember that was a key sequence. Well, that sounds yeah. exciting. <laughs> was, that's a very 90s, mid-90s set piece. Like, we need we need paper for the copier. Uh, also on that date, 
Ang Lee's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, or as Billy Crystal said in his Oscar monologue that year, uh, it's it's how Arnold Schwarzenegger asked Maria Schreiber out on their first date. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> that was a great uh, one. Yeah. Remember when Ang Lee made like intimate human size comedy dramas that we all yes. were kind of amazing that we all yeah. were just kind of quietly blown away by? Uh, hopefully he'll get back to that one day. Um, so yeah, remade about. Seven years later, as tortilla soup. I don't know if you all know that one. Uh, with a Mexican I re- family. Uh, I remember the movie. I didn't see it, but I do remember that being a remake, yeah. Good film, too. Airheads, Brendan Fraser, August 5th. Ooh, an HBO staple. Yeah, it Truly, is. Truly, an HBO staple. I don't know how many times I watched this on HBO. Uh, yeah. And this Michael Lehman, uh, man. Michael Lehman, yeah. His his Hudson Hawk rebound because when you rebound from Hudson Hawk, you do airheads. Um, I guess the uh, it's real footnote in history. This was the first, I think, major cinematic appearance of Adam Sandler in a supporting role. Yeah, uh, I think so. Hmm. So Sandler and Buscemi. So there you go. Uh, good soundtrack. Good metal soundtrack. Uh, has a funny. Has a few funny. Lines in it, a few funny gags, but yeah, it's a it's an HBO Saturday afternoon movie. Also on that day, uh, Pen- Penelope Spheris does a cinematic version of The Little Rascals. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah. yeah. Speak talking about the decline of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was her follow-up to Wayne's World, is that correct, yep. I believe? Yeah, Yeah, and she wasn't invited on for Wayne's World 2. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, she did um, Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That was the follow-up, yeah. That was the next yeah. movie, you're right. Which was a hit. Surprise yes, it hit. was. So, I guess they said, well, can you do that for the Little Rascals? Yeah, I just thought that was a bad idea when it came out, and... Again, that's another one I skipped, I have to admit. So. It was better than Camp Nowhere, I'll say that much. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah I can, You're blowing I can, our uh, lead, man. We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, yeah. Uh, August 10th, this was a little under the radar uh, mm-hmm. surprise for a lot of people. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Or is that what it is? Yep. Adventures yeah, of Priscilla. that's right. Yeah. Yep. Terrence Stamp's like, comeback. Mm-hmm. And uh, a young, uh, well, not young, but uh, well, relatively young, but a uh, uh, pre-LA Confidential Guy Pierce. Yeah, that is true. It's a, it's a fun movie. Uh, I like that movie a lot. Uh, really fun. Terrence Stamps a lot of, is really good in it. Guy Pierce is good. It's just, uh, it's really good. You know, drag was in for a couple of years. Um, it's better than that. Uh, what remember the following year was what Tu Wong Fu. Yeah, uh, yes. uh, which had its moments, but Priscilla is the real deal. Yeah, the following good, excellent week, choice of music too. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> what was what was their what was their choice of music? Oh well, well, they just had a lot of uh, songs at that time that kind of been forgotten. ABBA. Uh, I think they they used some ABBA on that too. Also, that was like well, the they first, did. Uh, they used. A, 
I remember them using Billy Don't Be a Hero and Never I've Never Been yeah. to Me by Charlene and right. them just really things that you wouldn't go west by the village people, which is one you don't think of when you right. so it was just an that interesting the, choice of pop. That was the kickoff of the uh uh you know, rediscovering of ABBA. You know, Muriel's wedding would come a year later. You yeah. know, so ABBA would get that second wind into mm-hmm. work. Yeah. Okay, August twelfth, Corinna, Corinna, begging begging audiences to see Ray Liotta as a sweet, gentle man after after Goodfellas. Yeah. Yes. He's actually he's quite good in the role. Um, it's just a very weird movie. It's so it's a, it's a kids film, but it's really not for kids because it's about death and it's very sad and. It has this very, very tentative interracial romance between mm-hmm. Ray Liotta and Whoopi Goldberg. There's a he he because he's a, he's a jingle writer. He hires her to, to be his nanny after yeah, the death a, of his wife. Right, and there's a he's a jingle writer, and there's a scene where she helps him write a jingle for pudding, and so it's just kind of a, <laughs> it's a weird it's a weird movie. Yeah, and wasn't the, it? The, it was the. Fu- Final film for Don Amici, I believe. Was it? Yeah, I they think it was. Think he, yeah, I, I think he died before it came out. I think he who was di- already... Who directed that? Who directed that? Oh, God. Corinna Corinna is directed by Jesse Nelson. Okay. Yeah. Who is best known for probably I Am Sam. That's oh, really? Right. Yeah. Well, Corinna Corinna is better than I Am Sam. I will say that definitively. Okay. Um, also on that date, in the army now, Paul is sure. Ooh. <laughs> that see, you need a movie like in the army now to to, to demonstrate why Airhead is a watchable HBO Saturday afternoon movie, while in the army now is an unwatchable HBO Saturday afternoon movie. There's a difference between those two. Mm. I'll Mm. agree with that. Yeah. Also on that date, the next Karate Kid. And the next Karate Kid was uh, Hilary Swank, right? So, yes. So that is the historical footnote that the next Karate Kid starred a future two-time Oscar winner. Mm -hmm. Five years later, she would be an Oscar winner. Yep. Yeah, and Pat Morita returned. Yeah, to be the teacher. I did not see. I've I've yet to see it. I've seen, I've seen one, two, and three. Uh, I have not. I I drew the line at this one. Yeah, I I don't even know if I remember. I don't even know if I remember three. But I'm telling you, I just rewatched part one and two, uh, just Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago. Um, One still holds up quite well. Yeah, two not as much, but it has its moments, and three well. Two has I I must admit, I do like the final fight of two I think it's the best fight. I agree I agree. Yeah. And, George uh, Miller had a movie out the following week called Andre, the true story of a little girl who befriends a seal. Wait, did he did he produce that or did he direct that? He directed it. So that's we're talking Mad Max George Miller right? That's the same George Miller. It is it is not the same George Miller. 
Okay, that explains okay. a lot. Okay, okay. It's a George. It's a George Miller who who also did uh, Zeus and Roxanne, uh, the Never Ending Story two, hmm. the Man from Snowy River. Okay, so it's an imposter. And yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had no recollection of yeah. George Miller doing that movie. <clears throat> okay. Uh, August 19th, this is the movie we've been waiting to discuss, Blank Man. I I actually do think it's funny. I think it's funny. It works. You know, you know, you you have a concept, you have to execute it, does it deliver? Yeah. Damon Wayne wants to make a goofy uh, African-American superhero comedy, kind of like a, an institution of like a Jerry Lewis comedy, there are some gags in that movie that are laugh out loud funny. So, yeah, Blank Man. Better than Meteor Man. In a city plagued with crime. Nobody moves! When hope is gone. And help is out of reach. Please help me. Hey, get off the car, you bum! Only one man can stand in the way of evil. Look! I'm a crime fighter! Uh, also on that date, here's a movie that uh, got a lot of scorn and ridicule. Color of Night. The oh erotic Bruce Willis thriller. Good God. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Willis was in free fall around this. Remember, this is Striking Distance and uh, Billy Bathgate and uh, North and Color of Night. Uh, I'm sure there's something else. There's some other stuff in there. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Hudson Hawk, right? Hudson Hawk's 91. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's all this bad stuff. He's just in free fall before Pulp Fiction. And mm. Color of Night, you know, is going to be his uh, basic instinct. You know, and as Richard yeah. Rush, the, his first mm. film since The Stuntman. Yep. We're all excited. And we go see it, and it's awful, and it has a twist that even the even the slowest person in the audience can figure out a mile away. Yeah, I rewatched parts of it recently. Uh, it's just a bad movie, and you have to you have to tolerate. And it's not even um, it doesn't quite get up to the caliber of so bad it's good. Because it's just mm-hmm. so ex- exhausting to sit and have to watch all of these crazies in these therapy sessions with the therapist Bruce Willis going through mm-hmm. their stories and their little crazy tics and everything one after another. It's a lot to kind of endure. But it wants so badly to be a, a scorching erotic thriller. But it's just it's far too silly to, to maintain that. Fresh, also on that date. Also made my top ten that year. Boaz Yaquin. Uh Sean Nelson gives one of the great child performances in film history. Uh Giancarlo Esposito is one of the great villains. Uh yeah, fresh, amazing movie. Yeah, I remember Roger Ebert touting its uh singing its praises, I should say. He was a mm-hmm. big, big fan of that as well. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember, I remember thinking it was. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I haven't seen it since it came out uh, back then, but 
I probably should revisit it, but yeah, I, I remember it being pretty pretty well done. Okay, guys, we're almost we're almost done. Just a couple more hours, and we'll be out of here. Uh, <laughs> August tw- August twenty sixth, Camp Nowhere. It went nowhere. Okay. <laughs> God, there are a lot, so many disposable movies. Uh, yeah. I I think I know where you're going with the next one, and, and there's an interesting tie-in to everything. Uh, well, the next one is It's Pat. Yep, that's what I was going to say. Do that it. is a uh, uncredited, uh, you know, uh, the screenplay uncredited screenplay contribution by Quentin Tarantino. So you're talking about the Quentin Tar- the summer of Tar- or the year of Tarantino. That's another one, although I'm sure he's not proud to admit that. But uh, no, he, he, did a- he has he has a very close relationship, or at least he did at that time with Julia Sweeney. He did, there. yes. Yeah, I think they dated. He was he was involved with her. Um, God said ha too. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know I think it's uh, it's Pat is always the whipping post of the you know the or the nadir of the Saturday Night Live films. I'm going to be honest and tell you I laughed quite a few times. <laughs> at the movie. Is it great? No, it's not a great movie, but there are some <laughs> solid laughs in it, and it's it's breezy, short enough. It's uh, just a little over an hour and fifteen minutes, and I don't know. Uh, I watched it again not too long ago, and uh, I, there are some funny moments in it. I, I don't know what that and says about me, but it's not the worst of the SNL movies. No, the worst not at all. SNL movies, like you know, look at you know, Coneheads or Ladies Man. There you go. Oh yeah, exactly. Or Superstar is pretty bad too. I think from what I remember. Also on that date, uh, Police Academy 7, Mission of Moscow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Seven. Jesus. Yeah. They were, they were going for the like James Bond numbers there. They were like, this could yeah. be a seven franchise in, that so lives seven for decades. Seven and ten years. Seven and ten years. But the big story of that date was Natural Born Killers. Oh, yeah. One of the more con- controversial films of that year. It still remains yeah. controversial. I uh, probably no movie have I uh, switched opinions on to a more profound degree than Natural Boy Killers. I think I was prone to love everything that Oliver Stone did at that time, and in general, I did. And I and when you first watch Natural Boy Killers, it's such an overwhelming experience that you're kind of floored by it. And while it, I think it's one of those movies that I might admire more than I enjoy. Uh, because I, I know what it's trying to do, but there's so many elements of it that d- doesn't make it rewatchable for me. Um, the, the the mania of it, I got it the first time. I don't need to put myself through that again. Um, it has some great performances. I mean, without a doubt, it's got monstrous performances in it. The Robert Richardson photography is just incredible. This pastiche of every it's nightmare fuel and every social, every um, uh, media uh, controversy. I remember it was being edited right up to the the last weeks before release because they inserted mm-hmm. the OJ footage from the OJ hearing, the preliminary hearing in the movie. Mm-hmm. They had a, they had a shot of that, but uh, I get tired of the Oliver Stone Indian stuff and all this bullshit yeah. and, you know, I I think it's a work of art. Uh, I saw it twice in theaters. 
Uh, I saw it at my first time. I saw it at a, a promo rock radio radio rock station promo screening, and everyone just went. Wild. It was funny. It was fun to watch because I was sitting behind the row where the critics, the official critics, sat. So every all the civilians went wild for it. All the young people just went nuts for it. The critics yeah. were just stone faced. They they had just been assaulted. They didn't know what to make. Of <laughs> they didn't know what to make. Which of the movies movie. the movies meant to be an assaultative experience, yeah. and maybe that's what I don't like when I rewatch it now. It's it's uh, because they're unpleasant movies that I enjoy watching. I mean, I enjoy Texas Chainsaw. I enjoy you know, uh, but I don't enjoy rewatching Natural Born Killers. It's just uh, a, totally an unpleasant experience for me. Hmm. There's no exhilaration second... in it for me. The second half is pure exhilarating filmmaking in the prison. Uh, everything Robert Downey Jr. does, I get a kick out of. The big riot sequence is just—I—I I mean, it's—it's it's, it's an obscene word, but that—that that whole stretch of the riot and all that—that that stuff is just fun to watch. It's just crazy yeah. dessert filmmaking. I just love watching it. Um, it is the movie of our time. It is a movie of its time. The fact that it was nominated for cinematography and editing is a mm-hmm. shame. It's a crime. Uh, I don't there, think there was a better edited movie that year or maybe that decade. Um, yeah. So yeah. It's, See, I get I get exactly what it's trying to do. Like I understand that, mm-hmm. and I, I admire the hell of that out of it for it. And I I know that it it can't work without that chaotic approach. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I know that the movie works at what it's trying to do, and yet I I just fundamentally fundamentally don't like it. And it's not any kind of moral thing. It's just no, not it's pleasant not, for me to do. Either... And I don't I don't I don't find Mickey and Mallory the iconic couple that Oliver wants them to be. I I, I think I think Sailor and Lula are that iconic uh, couple, uh, and he mm. he he wants them to be that. I think. I think the. Um... The uh, first, I mean, it's one of those films. You either get on its wavelength or you don't. And if you don't, then the movie's gonna feel like a stunt and be distancing. I think what puts off a lot of people, uh, it's not the violence so much, is that Mickey and Mallory are unironic in uh, love for each other. Um, and I think that's what disturbs a lot of people. A lot of times in these kind of outlaws on the run, the love story, there's always kind of an ironic distancing that goes on, be it Badlands, Bonnie and Clyde, and so forth. And so you're not fully in it. There's always like a little... Yeah. And in that and that's, that's another, that's another no thing distance. I don't like. That's another thing I don't like about it. Because when you hear Oliver Stone talk about it, he talks about how the movie's really about love and how, how love is the only thing that mm-hmm. saves Mickey and Mallory and he makes it this flowery kind of story about purity. And I, I, I don't... I think that's another disingenuous... Uh, thing but said by a director really, with his I mean, head up his ass. But the thing is, I mean, there's what a director intends, and then there's once the movie is out, then there's what the movie is. So Oliver Stone can in, intend it to be this, and says this is what I was going for. That's fine. But once the movie is out, the movie is its, its own thing. And what movie the movie really is is this thing of these two people who are in love unironically, who go on this killing spree, and what it is, it's just how it's this chicken and egg relationship between 
mass media and violence and what one fuels the other and who came first, uh, what what came first, and how it's just become this symbiotic uh, relationship. And yeah. that is, and, and it's, al- it's also interest. It's also interesting mm-hmm. to consider. This is another one of those pieces of filmmaking. I can't think of any other examples right now. But can you critic of criticizing something while being that exact same thing you're criticizing? Well, Clockwork Orange is a good example um, of that. Um, I mean, Clockwork Orange. So, but Clockwork Orange goes the it goes the opposite way. Clockwork Orange somehow says that the the uh, the intentions of the state mm-hmm. are, are 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 the real evil. That you should you mm-hmm. cannot save someone from their true selves, and you should not try. But the thing about Clockwork Orange, it wants to be. Uh, you know, it it rails. It wants to rail against ultra violence and violent nature of people, while at the same time, the first hour of that movie, it is totally on the side of Alex the Druk. It's on his side, so it has it both ways, and it's and Kubrick does that purposely. He wants you to be on Alex's side, but then also not to be, and so he goes back and forth on that. You know, and so there's mm. there's films uh, like Fight Club is like that. Uh, Fight Club is not as good as Natural Born Killers, but it's Fight Club an attack on uh, fascist thinking, or is it just another example of fascist thinking? I just don't know that the whole approach of am I am I really why am I attracted to this this violence and degradation that's played out in the media. I don't. I don't know if that comes across in the movie when it feels like Oliver Stone is so giddy, uh, you know, swimming in that violence himself. Well, yeah. I mean, he's having. I mean, that's kind of the the great joke of the film is that yes, he is railing against the violence and degradation that the media gives us by the handful, but then is also uh, he's railing against that, but is also saying, look, I am also a product of that. Uh, and, you know, the 20th century has created me and has created this environment. And that's why we get these, you know, these images of the 20th century throughout the film, uh, you know, be it from Scarface to atomic bombs. He's like, look, we are a product of all of this. So I am of it and I'm also outside of it. So, yeah, it's it's the... If it includes includes Scarface, he's also an arbitrator of it. Yeah. So yeah. he, you know, he's having he, you know, he doesn't let himself off the hook either. Adam, Adam you, have, you have anything to say about you, it? <laughs> you like the movie? I'm still, I'm still a fan of it. Uh, I actually think my appreciation of it has increased uh, since its release. When I saw it in a theater, I, I liked it, um, but there are a lot of things that I've embraced about it that in the years intervening years since that I didn't I, I don't think I had enough life experience to pick up on and uh, or movie experience maybe uh, and I think uh, I I think my appreciation has, has just increased over the years and I I am a fan of it. Uh it's probably not my favorite Oliver Stone movie but uh but I I do it, I I do appreciate it. August 31st Killing Zoe. Right. The Roger Avery bank heist movie. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Pretty good movie too, I think. Uh, and finally Finally, Milk Bunny. We go out on a high note. 
<laughs> My favorite story of milk money is, I remember um, this was years later. I, I read a thing where Ed Harris was on a on a red carpet line, like and greeting the fans and signing autographs, and someone had a uh, milk money VHS tape, and uh, he signed it. So uh-huh. I. I always found that kind of amusing. Like, yeah, I'll sign milk money. He's like, I'm proud of that. That's funny. Well, he did it. Hmm? Be, yep. be rude of him not to sign it. So I like, I rewatched this a couple of months ago. Believe it's it weird, or not, isn't it? <laughs> it is strange. Is that a mm-hmm. Disney movie? No, I don't think so. Paramount, it, I believe. It wants to be a okay. Disney movie, but you know, <laughs> it uh, Disney draws the line at hookers. Unless it's Pretty Woman, yeah, a Pretty Woman, yeah, and it feels yeah. like the movie kind of, kind of maybe taking its cue from that. But mm-hmm. uh, it's just an odd. It is. You're right. It is an odd story. Mm-hmm. But to falling in love with a hooker, and the hooker befriends the kid, and the kid learns all about sex from the hooker, and it's it's played yeah. out in this very wholesome Leave It to Beaver way. It's like they they save up their money because they don't even say. I don't think they say in the film they want to see a naked woman. And they're like, we have our money here. And like, but they never even ask her what they want her to do. Like, the movie's very coy. You sure you don't need something? I need a hundred bucks or I'm going to get smacked. You got that? Yes, I do. You can have it. You saved my life. <laughs> what are you doing with all that money? We wanted to see a naked lady. You know what? Why don't you take that money and go home before you get hurt, okay? I wish I could, but it means a lot to my friends. We just want to look. How much looking? As much as money could buy. All right. Well, a few good movies and uh, more than a few not great movies. (laughs) (laughs) Always something to watch every week. i